Welcome to the Deep Impact Investing Podcast with Kimberly Griego-Kyle of Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. In this podcast, we discuss sustainable impact investing, creating portfolios that match your values, and a variety of other topics such as financial education, social justice, and sustainable food systems. Do you want to know if your investments seek the kind of accountability from corporations that you demand? Listen in as we explore the burning question, are you investing like you give a damn? Hello and welcome to Deep Impact Investing with Kimberly Grigo Kyle and Johan Clausen from Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. Johan, how are you? I'm doing well, Eric. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's been a long time since you've been on the podcast. Kim is here. Kim, how are you? Uh, yes, of course I'm here. <laughs> I'm not trying to ignore you. I just, I just, it's, you know, it's this guy time that I just haven't had with Johan in so long. Oh my gosh. So. <laughs> All right. Whatever. All yeah, okay. Right. But to balance out the testosterone in the room, you have a guest, right? Yes, I do. I have a special woman um, that Johan and I have known for quite a while. Her name is Sonia Kowal. And um, we're going to be talking about something that is very close to her and dear to her heart, and also important to talk about the reactions in the impact investing space. So Sonia okay. has been part of Zevin Asset Management, which is a B corporation um, for, I'm not sure exactly how many years, but for the last seven and a half years, she's been the president. Zevin uh, Asset Management manages uh, the socially responsible global diversified equity and bond portfolios and strategies, which are for individuals and families and all other myriad of, of folks, including us. She does have a couple of um, folios that she runs for us. Sorry, <laughs> I totally forgot the word, but I've brought her on today because of a recent um, article she wrote. And we want to talk to Sonia about... Um, what's happening in Ukraine. And she is Ukrainian American, and she still has family there. So Sonia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Did I miss anything about your background that's important you want to share? No, that's perfect. Okay, good. Let's um, kind of jump right in. And I know Johan will probably have some questions around the investment process, but let's really talk about your 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 history and your family and why the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has really touched a nerve for you. Yeah, so for many Eastern Europeans, it has always been a question of when, not if, uh, the Russians were going to invade. Um, history has a, a strange way of repeating itself. And my parents were born to... Ukrainian uh, people that were uh, refugees after World War II from Russian aggression then. So my parents were born in displaced people's camps in Germany. And so for many hundreds of years, this cycle has been playing out. And this is just the most uh, recent iteration, but that doesn't make it um, awful. Yeah. So I did not know that your parents were displaced uh, in during World War II, so that's very interesting. Tell me how how did you come to be? Did they <laughs> did they come to? Do you really want to know that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, we I don't have to talk was... about the details. <laughs> when did your parents come to the U.S.? So um, they were born there, and uh, in 
in the time of these camps, um, different organizations and uh, companies would come to the camps looking for workers or for people that they could take out because, you know, it wasn't a long-term solution to have people there. And so my mother's family was brought to the U.S. by a charitable organization that was resettling refugees. And my father's family uh, ended up in in England with a factory that needed workers. So um, they ended up in different places, but their, Uher- their Ukrainian heritage was very strong. And, you know, Ukrainians have a way of, of sticking together. Um, and they met um, when my father was touring with a choir in Canada and wow. came into uh, the U.S. for a day or two, met my mother, and they kept in touch, got married, had me. Great. And well, I'm, we don't have to I'm talk here. about the how they had you, but <laughs> right. <laughs> and and you still have family in Ukraine, correct? Yeah. So when my grandparents left, uh, they unfortunately had to leave a son who was too young to travel. They traveled with my aunt, who was two years old, uh, across you know on horseback and in, in carts uh, across uh, you know basically a war zone. Wow. Uh, but they had to leave their six-month-old son behind with uh, my grandmother's mother, and they were all eventually uh, sent to Siberia. So my uncle and his uh, grandmother, Uh, and he ended up getting married there and having two children. And uh, those two children are still there in in Kiev. And so uh, I have two first cousins, and one of them had a baby on February 24th, uh, the first Mm -hmm. day of the war in a in a hospital basement bomb shelter. So thank oh goodness gosh. she's healthy. The baby's healthy because that that story could have ended very badly. So yeah. they're still there. Um, obviously, the men aren't allowed to leave. Uh, and my cousin and her daughter don't have really, I've, I've been in touch to see if they are interested in leaving. Um, but they're looking like they're going to stay put for the time being. Oh, my goodness. That is uh, heart-wrenching. And I know when Johan and I first read this article, we were both extremely touched. And, and Johan, maybe you want to jump in about how what your reaction was. Oh, it's a, it was a lovely piece that you wrote. I think that um, the the ability to weave the personal and the uh, and the financial together is fascinating. Um, I have a little bit of uh, a tie to Ukraine myself. My uh, my um, Mennonite family. Uh, spent most of the 19th century um, in um, Molochansk, uh, the Molochna colony, north of Melitopol. Wow. So in southern Ukraine. Uh, but they emigrated to Canada and the United States in the late uh, 19th century because the Tsar of Russia wanted them to sign up for his armies. And um, the Mennonites are pacifists and so refused. So they had to, <laughs> they had to leave. <laughs> I did not know this about you, Johan. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Um, do we want to, I, I don't know if you have anything else you want to share on the personal level, Sonia, whatever your comfort level might be um, before I do move into the investment piece of this conversation. I just want to give you the opportunity to share anything else. No, just to say I'm very heartened by the solidarity that I've seen. You know, so many people have reached out and it's it's really um it's really heartwarming to know that the whole world almost the whole world is behind the Ukrainians and really 
trying to support them in, in different ways that they can. A couple of years ago, maybe most people didn't know even where the country was. Um, yeah. And now, you know, I think they really have shown who they are. Um, and I'm really proud of that. That That's good. And, and we have seen a lot of outpouring of um, concern and care. And, you know, I know Johan and I have both had clients ask us, do we have any investments in Russia? And that's become an, a major issue, which probably no one really thought to ask for the last decade. How do you yeah. think we as asset managers, and then let's just talk about asset managers before investors, but how do you feel we should be reacting to this situation? Yeah. So Russia has been a small part of most people's investment universe uh, for many years, and some have chosen to ignore it as we have. Uh, and others have thought that they should be invested there because there was money to be made. But, you know, I would argue that Putin has a number of invasions under his belt. Uh, and these should have been earning early warning signs for investors. But collectively, we really shrugged off the, his aggressive behavior. And so now investors have no excuse um, to be invested there. And you know, it's up to all of us to ensure that we're not enabling human rights atrocities in this war. And I think there's a few ways that asset managers can do this. Um, you know, when we start uh, shareholder advocacy campaigns, we always uh, look to affected groups uh, to see what their ask is. And in this case, the Ukrainian government has requested that investors take responsibility and play their part in isolating the Russian economy and financial system. And that goes far beyond just divestment of Russian assets, which realistically is no longer even possible for Western investors. And so we all have a responsibility as managers to look deep into our portfolios and understand the role of multinationals mm -hmm. in enabling human rights atrocities in Ukraine through what they're selling, through their corporate products and services. And so that requires a lot of homework and thoroughly researching and evaluating Russian supply chains and relationships for proximity to the Russian regime. Which is pretty comprehensive if you're thinking about what you really have to look at. I mean, supply chains is just one issue, but you know, think about the Starbucks and the fast food restaurants and and those types of things. But I would but argue that those kinds of companies, although they pay taxes, they're less, they're farther away from the human rights abuses. You know, so we're trying to really focus on um, the technology sector, the communication sector, natural resources, and financial. Uh, financial services. Those are the closest ones, and that's where the work has to start. Um, but by all means, I don't think that Western companies uh, should be doing op having operations in Russia. I agree with you, and I think Johan probably would agree as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting to see just how many multinational companies are um, ceasing business in Russia and and removing their connection. Uh, to what extent, though, can we, um, I guess the question for me is, to what extent can we um, discern between um, multinational companies that have small, minimal, small to, to negligible uh, contacts with the 
with uh, Putin's uh, regime and and others that are doing. Is there a distinction to be drawn, maybe, between companies that are doing business with Russian people, but not necessarily with the with the government or the or or Putin's inner circle? Is that a yes. distinction we want to make, or? Um, I think eventually, yeah, or I think right now, especially, yes, actually, um, I think though. As I mentioned, we need to focus first on the ones that are the most problematic because mm, everyone right. has limited time and, and resources. So focusing on those first is the most important. Um, and getting information can be challenging. I mean, uh, all the big sell-side brokers are putting out report after report trying to identify who has revenues that are at risk from not being able to sell in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's really, that's, I don't think that's that interesting or that important to investors, especially ESG investors. Mm. So we've also been talking to the ESG rating agencies to try and get them to help identify those companies who are in close proximity to human rights abuses in Ukraine. But what we found is their methodology is much more concerned about ESG risks to companies mm. than what rather than what ESG risks come from companies. You know, they have resources on sanctions. But in this situation, given what's happening, compliance with sanctions doesn't go nearly far enough. So what we really want is analysis that details international corporate involvement in Russia and then ranks companies on proximity to those human rights violations. And then what I'm most interested in and then is then disclosure of mitigatory actions. That would be really useful. Um, yeah. There's a Yale list that is starting, but it only involves a select bunch of US companies and we're global investors. So right now what we're doing is reaching out to companies in our portfolio. And that's not too difficult for us to do because we run pretty concentrated portfolios of, of large multinationals and asking them various questions about their exposure. Sonia, this is really fascinating to me. And, and what I hear you saying is that what we've actually exposed in this process is a little bit of a lack of information gathering for the ESG space around this, this particular issue. Especially in in a forward looking kind of way, it, it, you know, given the Russian um, approach to uh, Georgia or to um, Chechnya over the past couple of decades, we should perhaps not have been at all surprised um, that disasters of this magnitude could occur again. Correct. So. Yeah. Let me ask Johan first, and, and then Sonia, I'd like your opinion as well. You know, of course, we have clients who are saying, make sure I don't have anything in Russia. What should we be telling them beyond, well, no, you've been, you know, you've diversified from Russia for a while, or what, what should we be talking to individual investors, clients? Well, I think you need to understand also what's in their portfolios, manager, the managers that you use, what their approach is to this whole situation and how they're analyzing their portfolios and reaching out. So it, I guess it depends on why the clients are asking, are they worried about losing money? So again, that's the ESG risk to the companies, or are they concerned that 
the companies are contributing some way to human rights abuses. And because those are two different conversations and and I think managers kind of are on both sides of that sometimes. True. And I think our clients are asking for the second reason. And it's not just about losing money because they really care about what's going on. But Johan, what, what would you say? Yeah, most of our uh, the clients that I've talked to so far about this question um, have been asking because they are concerned about, I don't know quite how to put it other than to say uh, the moral taint of being associated with, um, with Russia uh, at this point. It has been interesting then. Uh, we, I looked in the various mutual funds and, and in the, um, the managed portfolios that we have, and only I was only able to find a small handful of exposure to direct exposure to Russian companies in a couple of mutual funds and a couple of, of other places. So it hasn't been the direct exposure to Russian um, equities has not been particularly concerning. Um, it did provide us an opportunity to help a couple of clients <laughs> remove um, legacy positions, you know, some old non-SRI, non-ESG emerging markets, mutual funds out of their portfolios that they've been holding on to for tax reasons, mm. gave them an opportunity to divest from those um, for reasons other than the financial or, or the tax-oriented reasons that had them in those funds in the first place. But I think that, you know, looking at the sort of second order, um, as you are suggesting, Sonia, looking at those companies that have been doing business those non-Russian companies that have been doing business in Russia and supporting the regime there um, it, indirectly, perhaps, but <laughs> um, supporting it nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's that's going to be the next um, level of conversations that we need to have. Yeah, it's those without their obvious ties to the Russian state, and you know, really trying to understand what practices those companies have in place to address the heightened risks of doing businesses in an authoritarian state such as Russia. But it also, you know, you need to understand what they're doing to make sure their operations don't enable these atrocities. And so it takes a lot of questioning. Um, And, you know, some companies have tried to get out in front of it and put out statements, but some of them are frankly absurd. You know, I don't know what the (laughs) right term for human rights greenwashing is. Uh, It's a new term. But, uh, you know, companies are really doing it. Some of the statements we've analyzed, you know, you could put a bus through them. So learning to recognize the emissions in this statement is a really important skill. Uh, so we need to analyze these statements and then push back on on what's missing. What I hear you talking about really is a, a apartheid approach, but on a much faster level, if we're going to make a difference in this aggression against Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, And we have the tools to do this. As you said, investors did this in the apartheid era. More recently, uh, the uh, the UN put together the guiding principles for business and human rights. Uh, We also have the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. These are used as guides for engagement toward appropriate corporate action. So we have blueprints on how to do this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people, companies, investors need to be willing to do the homework and then do the right thing. So Sonia, how do we do this if we're really already past 
the proxy filing season, how are we going to push corporations, especially multinational corporations, to get the heck out? Yeah, so there are coalitions of investors that are um, being put together by uh, the Investor Alliance on Human Rights. That's a a group uh, that's been put together by the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility. Um, And they're going to be targeting some of the the largest multinationals that have the most um, concerning exposure first. Great. That's, uh, I think, sounds like a great start to me. But Um, I would say that each manager should be reaching out to just about every company in their portfolio to really understand their exposure to Russia um, and really understanding if they decide to stay, what they're going to be, uh, how they're going to change their behavior. Very good point. I'd like to talk a little bit about Zevin Asset Management itself and tell me why you are involved in in, um, doing this work at Zevin and what you generally do outside of this particular issue. Sure. So, you know, I guess being Ukrainian and being the president, I can kind of (laughs) steer a little bit of the strategy here. Of course. Um, So I'm I'm lucky in that way. But, you know, as a firm, we have long resisted any temptation to uh, invest in Russian companies or any businesses with significant sales or or operations in Russia. The political risks are much too high. The economic instability is huge. And, you know, they really haven't reformed their economy to a way that uh, we feel comfortable. So we are a firm, an investment firm that really tries to prudently balance both risk and reward over the long term. And being invested in a place like Russia, just uh, it it doesn't, um, it doesn't correspond to that investment approach. So right now, what we're doing, as I mentioned, is, is really looking at the companies we're invested in. You know, our direct exposure is minimal, but still we want to press companies to make sure that they are doing the right thing if they do stay there. Great. And Sonia, I would assume that this also applies to uh, corporations doing business in South America and certain parts of Africa um, on, on the same similar issue. So the biggest thing that we're talking right now about is China and mm. understanding our exposures there and also acknowledging the fact that there also is an authoritarian regime where investors can be targeted just as uh, closely as dissidents and that government regulation and policy can change very quickly and not allowing uh, investors to get out in time. And so really trying to uh, better understand the business risks of our exposure, either directly or through multinationals, and trying to to figure out what the appropriate uh, role is there. Most, uh, you know, many emerging markets with authoritarian regimes are you know small on a global stage in terms of investment, but China has a much bigger place in the benchmark. So true. I I feel like Sonia, we should be setting you up here as the the expert on this. <laughs> You're very passionate about it, and I think a lot of asset managers could really learn a few things from the work that you're doing at Seven. Thank you. I mean, we're, we're trying to really think about this through, 
you know, modeling the effects of different economic scenarios on financial markets globally, right? We, we're, we've trying to take into account inflation, right? That's going to be going through the roof by elevated commodity prices and food prices and other supply shocks. We're also trying to think about um, what's happening to fossil fuels as a result, right? Europe really needs to decrease its reliance, and it should have done this already if on, uh, from Russian fossil fuels. But are there opportunities there? Is there a silver lining of something that might be you know, a net beneficiary of this sad situation? I hope you're right. I hope there is a silver lining to this because I think for folks like you who have family there, whose family came from Ukraine, this is a very important issue and um, probably scary too. And I think it is to a lot of investors in terms of what could possibly happen. And we won't go to worst case scenario because I don't think we're there yet. Johan, do you have anything else you'd like to add to this conversation today? No, I'm. Uh, I think it is very interesting to me to say to take this moment to think um, about the broader implications. Because yes, there are other authoritarian uh, authoritarian regi- regimes, regimes elsewhere <laughs> yeah. in the world. I was trying to think of another word for it, but right. no, I can't can't think of anything. There are other com- uh, countries with uh, authoritarian political systems right now, and. W- this is a terrific example. I mean, it's a terrific bad example of what can happen when democratic norms get subverted and that this is an opportunity for us to review not just our holdings in Russia or in China, but but just about everywhere uh, and figure out what we want to do with those holdings, given the risks that authoritarian politics um, gives both from a humanitarian standpoint and just from a financial standpoint. Yeah, it's it's one of these clear situations where ethics and finances are pushing you in the same direction. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. I want to invite Eric into this conversation. Um, Eric, do you have any questions? Well, I, what I'm hearing just theme over and over again, and Kim, you've talked about this on many podcasts, it's all about accountability. Yes. And so... That is such a tough area to tackle because how do you hold individuals, investors, these larger companies accountable in a timely fashion? Because that, that's my biggest thing is that this is, this is not something that we can talk about for the next nine months, right? People are suffering now. Right. And so that, that accountability is, and maybe that's what we're all trying to figure out. But um, Sonia, what do, you, what do you think as far as accountability? What can the average person do? Not forget. I think you're right. You know, as this people will move on to the next catastrophe, the next disaster. Um, and that the show of support is so important to Ukrainians. I would say, I don't know how this ends. I don't think anybody does. I, I'm not seeing a lot of positive outcomes. But when it does end, I think reinvestment really will be key. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, people making donations, I would say, you know, when when this has come out of the headlines, the problems will still be there and there will be a whole nation that will need to be rebuilt and integrated into the into the Western community. Um, and they'll have very little resources on their own to do that. So, you know, that will be the next stage is using all of our talents and money and whatever else we have to offer to, you know, help bolster um, a brand new country. 
which it will be. Yeah. And you're very, very, very correct here in saying that it's going to come back around to the community investing essentially and the impact, um, direct impact of, of what we can do in the region. So, yeah. Any last words, Sonia? No, I think you've uh, you've uh, <laughs> you've heard quite enough for me, and I yeah. really appreciate your interest, and I hope it's been interesting for your listeners. I I think it will be very interesting for the listeners, and I've long wanted to get you on the podcast, and this was an impetus to do so. I wish we could talk about something a little more fun, but next again, time, next time we will we'll do it again. Johan, any last thoughts? No, I'm good. <laughs> okay, Sonia, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and Johan and Eric and and really touching on this subject and what it's been like for you on a personal level as well. And then what you're doing on a corporate level with the assets that you manage. And I want to thank you for leading the charge on that piece. So, My pleasure. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, I always want to mention to our listeners, if this is a concern for you, if you're not getting the answers that you want from your advisor about whether or not you have assets in Russia or how you can make a difference, we're here for you. You can give us a call at the office at 505-982-9661, or you can email info at horizonssfs.com. Dot com and that goes to both Johan and I so we're we're available for your questions and help everybody Eric? this was a great podcast thank you so much for spending the time with us today Johan it's always a pleasure thank you for being here balancing out this equation of course oh, thank you yeah yeah uh, and and Kim thank you so much for of course hosting this and, and putting this on and educating all of us and Sonia I do want to echo what Kim said I hope you come back and I hope it is at the rebirth of Ukraine uh, positive things that are going on I would love to hear an update on your family uh, and and their safety that would be great so I, I hope you do come back and our last thank you is always reserved for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Deep Impact Investing Podcast with Kimberly Grego Kyle and Johan Klaassen. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Kim and Johan come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Horizon Sustainable Financial Services, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. For listening to Deep Impact Investing, the sustainable, responsible impact investing podcast that shows you how to invest like you give a damn. If you have questions about this podcast or topics you'd like to hear addressed on an upcoming podcast, email us at kim at horizonssfs.com. Join the conversation on Twitter at Horizons S U S T F I N or give us a call at 505 982 9661. Don't forget to click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The companies we may speak about during our podcast are not recommendations for investment. Only you and your financial advisor can determine what the right investments are for you. Horizon Sustainable Financial Services, Inc. and its financial professionals do not render tax or legal advice. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and or guest 
and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. None of this content may be used or duplicated without the express written agreement of the podcast host.